So my question relates to this. How do you become an Agile? Yeah, it's all in my book. <laughs> <laughs> so the short version. Yeah, the short version. Yeah, that's How do you become part of this network? Yeah. How mm -hmm. do you get into the business? Yeah, good question. So that's quite um, different. As I said, it's not a homogeneous group. Of course, there are very different groups and very different, how to say, I mean, they have, they, they share common identity factors somehow, but they are also quite different. Also in the way how they pr practice their recycling uh, business somehow. And um, in the groups I made research mainly, they are a very close group in the sense of that they are very close friends, that they are sometimes cooking together in the evening and that they have special depots where they very much relate and, and there is also certain interdependencies between depot and uh, waste picker groups in this regard. And there, for example, there must be a place free somehow at the depot that somebody is able to come in and that is related to the amount of pushcarts that the depot, for example, has. So because the depot is lending these pushcarts to the to the to the HIs um, temporarily, so that's another problem somehow. <laughs> but however, um, and so that there needs to be a place that is free, and then normally somebody is suggesting someone, so to speak, and then this person normally is the newbie or is labeled as a kind of newbie through a certain ritual, um, or yeah, and um, then um, there is one of the older person normally taking this newbie under its wings. And then it takes about, depending on how, how, long, how much time this newbie needs to get into it somehow and learn the ropes and rules somehow of this business. The two podcast episodes, Talk at the Library, are a result of us, a working group of the Student Association, consensually recording the event of the same name at the Department for Social Anthropology and Cultural Studies of the University of Zurich at the end of the spring semester 2023. In this first Talk at the Library episode, Lindsay Vogt talks to Katrin Eitel about her 2022 published book, Recycling Infrastructures in Cambodia, Circularity, Waste and Urban Life in Phnom Penh. After a quick introduction and a brief summary of a few main points by Lindsay, Katrin reads a few paragraphs of her book. And the two discuss questions around gender, recycling and waste infrastructure as well as the life and work of Cambodian waste pickers, the Ajay. As the recording happened in a library with an audience, you will be hearing some background noise. We're always looking forward to any input, ideas and general feedback regarding our small Fachverein Ethnologie Zürich podcast production. We thank both the department as well as the two speakers for the interesting talk and the opportunity for another inspiring anthropolitical episode. Thanks so much for joining us today. <laughs> I'll open the talk with a little bit of first um, introduction to Katrin, and then um, a brief summary of her book. Um, and then Katrin will read an excerpt, and then we'll have a discussion where I'll ask uh, Katrin some questions. Um, so uh, Katrin Eitel is an Ober assistant and at our very own ESEC, the chair of Anuska Dirks. She's currently a Walter uh, Benjamin Fellow, uh, funded by the German Research Foundation DFG for her new and upcoming research product, project, Radical Resilience, Encountering Flood Policies, knowledge, knowledge Formations, and Climate Transformation Processes in Ho Chi Minh City. With this research, Catherine will research connections between local and gender-specific practices of flood control, the power of knowledge productions, and inscribe hegemonic and heteronormative worldviews, 
and flood policies that are based on satellite data in Vietnamese and Cambodian coastal regions. So the, traje the trajectory of research follows her earlier work on recycling infra infrastructure in um, Phnom Penh, which will be the focus of our discussion today. And um, I won't talk about that right now because we'll talk about it very soon. So broadly, Catherine is a political and ecological anthropologist who specializes in bringing together approaches from critical infrastructure studies, feminism, um, STS, um, to inform her work. She received her PhD in cultural anthropology from the University of Frankfurt in 2021, and her dissertation was awarded the Environment and Sustainability Prize at Goethe University with publication sponsorship from the Wilhelm Hahn and Erben Foundation, an open access status funded by Grade Sustain. Um, the polished iteration of this work, which we'll discuss today, was published in 2022 with Rutledge and is merely the capstone for many other publications that she's authored in German and English. Um, reaching beyond the Academy, Catherine has published her work in newspaper outlets and blogs, such as Südostasien, Alltag in der Krise, a blog devoted to coronavirus-related issues, and the Southeast Asian Globe. Uh, she further acted as a consultant on the project designing the plastic waste sector for an extended producer responsibility pilot project with the United Nations um, Development Program. And last but not least, her speculative fiction uh, flash story, Damn Visions, won honorable mention at East 2022 in Madrid, and is also then published in East Review for those who are interested in checking it out. Um, and I also asked Catherine some additional um, questions beyond the, the normal professional bios, because I thought you might be interested. And the highlights of those I'll summarize. So I asked <laughs> if she had any favorite literature that she's been reading recently or stuff that she goes back to um, all of the time. And she mentioned Donna Haraway and Gregory Bateson, and also often rereading Susan Lee Stars and Jeffrey Boker's uh, Sorting Things Out. Um, also, I asked if she had any personal highlights of her experience of Zurich or Switzerland, and she mentioned the department. Um, <laughs> <laughs> namely, that uh, it's a very caring environment for its researchers, um, and how unusual that is in academia, and how she's never seen anything quite like it. Um, then, um, finally, um, I asked if she had any tips that she could recommend um, from institutions she's been at in the past, and she uh, she flagged um, our attention or flags our attention to the very vibrant SCS community and research in Frankfurt that's going on between mainly the Institute for Cultural Anthropology, European and European Ethnology, and Sociology and Human Geography. And so, let us welcome Catherine. <laughs> thank you so much for this introduction. <laughs> thank you, and thank you for having me here. No. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so now I believe I'll continue to hold the mic and um, summarize the book for you all. Um, a lot of what I will say will be summary, so I'm trying to kind of set us all up for a discussion later. Um, so Catherine's book, titled Recycling Infrastructures in Cambodia, Circularity, Waste, and Urban Life in Phnom Penh, published in 2002 with Rutledge, ethnographically follows the infrastructures of recyclable waste in Phnom Penh and primarily focuses on a specific group of waste workers. The Ajay, is that right? Yeah. Ajays, sorry. Ajays are predominantly Khmer women who often have migrated from villages outside of the capital city in search of better economic prospects and find work collecting recyclable materials, largely plastic and aluminum, from urban waste that they then sell and move towards an international market that further processes materials into re reusable matter and goods. 
It's difficult work. Um, it requires a pushcart, a highly valued vehicle that workers would um, often not be able to afford on their own. Um, that one pushes around the city for long hours each day while often balancing other household and domestic duties, traversing the heat, the wetness of the monsoon, and coming into direct contact with waste of all forms. It's various states of decay and reassembly and the non-human life it fosters, bacterial, viral, animal, as well as other, um, other um, people um, encountered in the streets. So for instance, municipal uh, waste workers who fight with the Ajay for supposedly breaking waste bags, teenagers or other playing, others playing tricks um, on or robbing the waste workers. The labor requires approaching householders of often significantly di distant economic status and bearing their sometimes degrading boundary-making treatment, bearing the stench of waste aromas um, in its various states of decay and also its social stigma. It's work that requires a great deal of specialized knowledge as well, of when to untie a bag of waste, whether it will yield recyclable goods that can be sold, of which houses that might sell their recyclable goods, of how to construct routes through the city that will yield enough goods to make a living, of what information and knowledge to pass on to others, whether they be friendly peers or coworkers or newcomers to the occupation. So knowing when to um, knowing enough information to share so to build solidarities, but not to jeopardize knowledge resources that make one's livelihood possible. So the, the waste infrastructure covered in Catherine's ethno ethnography looks something like this. So there's the Ajais, um, who are the waste pickers, um, who do the work that I just summarized, in their, um, who, who take their routes throughout the city with their push, car push carts. The push carts are often supplied by recycling depots um, through often a kind of system of patronage or employment. So usually the waste, um, the waste workers will promise their labor mostly to, to a certain depot, though they're not exclusive always to them. And then that's how they often receive their push carts. So they collect recyclables throughout the cities based on daily routes, and they often have to process the recyclables before giving them, um, selling them to recycling depots, or otherwise the, they'll get a much lesser sum for them. Then at the recycling depots, which are often owned by ethnic Vietnamese, there are about 400 around the city. Um, um, the waste is weighed and um, further sorted and aggregated. Um, and then they're taken um, by trucks to um, further upstream for waste processing. Um, so there, those are then those at a next level are depots that either process or transport the material internationally um, for further processing. So sometimes they are, the plastic or the aluminum is squished into compact cubes and, and shipped. Um, often to Thailand, Vietnam, or, or less frequently to China. Um, and different materials have different geographical trajectories um, or pathways. Um, so this work cleans the city, it filters garbage of valuable and non-organic um, degradable materials, um, contributing to a form of environmental maintenance and care that also mitigates some drivers of climate change. It's work that makes living more possible for residents in the city and for those making a living who sell those materials. So the infrastructure revealed through Catherine's ethnography is emphatically vital. Not only is it enlivened by vital substances, the matter that makes modernity and modern life waste, and the manifold materialities that matter transforms into um, as it traverses its post-conception life as discard, but also as an infrastructure that is almost in its entirety comprised of human components, the waste work of people. Um, and then I'll conclude by kind of summarizing the main arguments of the book. Um, 
one is that this system comprises the larger in this system comprises the larger recycling infrastructure of Phnom Penh and is rather what Catherine terms infracycles. So infracycles are infrastructures within and, within and overlapping upon infrastructures that are cyclical and circular in nature. Um, this space in the waste economy, through identifying it as kind of the primary um, object of ethnographic analysis and work, um, is where the brightest prospects of economic circularity lie in this in the capital city of Cambodia. So as in moving away from a linear economy that goes um, depends on extracting um, material, assembling it in production, consuming it, and then waste. This is working towards um, extending the kind of life um, cycles of um, of matter and economic goods, um, and also kind of reusing them and uh, packaging them into material that can kind of continue to be used. Um, so the most crucial aspect to this, secure, this circularity of the system or the thing that makes it possible to be circular is that it's recursive or rather self-referential, namely that it's, um, it's a system where um, the different components of the infrastructure rebuild or build their own fundamental elements repeatedly, and it's adaptable. Um, it's constantly optimizing and changing. So ethnographically, this largely appears when individual waste workers can't work for a day or for some time, or when recycling depots close, the system still functions. There's no kind of collapse or there's no kind of um, lapse into dysfunction. Um, so in other words, despite, despite changes in the system, the system continues to modify um, and self-correct. And that's where I'll end the summary. There's, of course, more, but we'll get to that later. Well, thank you very much. I'm quite unsure of whether I can add something to that summary. <laughs> <laughs> so, should I read something? Please. Else? <laughs> okay, so the next program point is that I'm, I'm allowed to read something out for about five minutes, which was quite difficult for me to choose something. So, uh, yeah, I hope um, I have chosen now something, something a little bit more ethnographically, but which gives you also an insight in one of the aspects that I find quite... Uh, important to highlight because when we often think of waste pickers and often they are termed and labeled with the terminus of uh, informality for example so which is rather degrading terminus um, they are often seen as victims so what I'm now reading out a bit is um, the contrary so it's uh, within the chapter of um, uh, it's called entangle the urban recycling infrastructure and the subject uh, which is called tinkering with the new order Thanks for the <laughs> advice here also. So um, I flew to Cambodia for the very first time in 2016 to explore the issue of waste. At the time, I would never have occurred to me that anyone could find freedom in working with the stinky poo that flows along the streets or the rubbish heap on a corner surrounded by blowflies. I was proven wrong. Um, I first encountered the concept of freedom at the beginning of my background research. I was sitting with a Cambodian research partner in a Starbucks cafe. It was quite freezing out uh, cold because the air conditioning was on full power, as it is so often in such cafes. Around us sat Cambodian students drinking milkshakes, talking loudly amid between people in thin suits, suits, black or dark blue with snow white shirts underneath. I sat shivering and holding my thin scarf tightly wrapped around me, facing the person I was talking to. My companion, who was just about to provide another batch of urgently needed information, which I hastily absorbed and scribbled in cryptic keywords in my notebook, said, 
because they, so the waste pickers said, it's not freedom to work for a company. Um, they often say, if you work for the company, you don't have freedom. That's one thing. The second thing is some kind of attitude, like that they don't want to work under anyone. I was surprised to hear the statement. I would have assumed that waste pickers are involuntarily trapped in the precariousness of their working conditions. In the months that followed, I re repeatedly raised the topic of freedom with the collectors. However, a significant amount of time passed before I understood what the term ultimately meant and how it, it affected my view of the capitalist system, the informalities and formalities of work, and the precariat. As my research partner, a Cambodian waste management expert and engineer, expressed his astonishment um, that this kind of work can be preferred to a proper job, it became, became clear that how unusual people behave in his eyes. The feeling of freedom in this example relates to independence, a kind of labor autonomy, a relational structure that guarantees that decisions can be independently made of a patronizing and controlling actor. This autonomy implies a certain degree of self-determination. When HIs speak of freedom, they tend to do so by referring to their freedom from employers. This independence guarantees self-determination over their decisions whenever and wherever they want. It is their freedom to decide when to take a break, when to come to work for a short time, and whether and where to wait for something. As noted in previous chapter, this self-determination manifests in a narrative about flexibility in its presence in everyday life. However, it also expresses itself in what I would like to call the rebellious acts where it is performed. Waste reclaimers sometimes obstruct the effective flow of the recycling infrastructure, um, uh, as when they send recyclables to other depots or stay at home from work. Doing so strengthens the whole infrastructure just because extraordinary and rebellious paths are taken. Similar, anthropologist Max Klugman emphasized in Order and Rebellion in Tribal Africa that ritualized conflicts are an essential driver for preserving a community. On behalf of an extraordinary social framework created during conflict situations, social outbursts in order, uh, in other words, the ability to uh, vent personal feelings about the ruling system, stabilize the whole system. This occurs within an established and unchallenged social order, according to Kluckman. It does not aim to overthrow the entire system, contrary to the typical understanding of revolution. In this regard, rebellious acts are performed through the way waste pickers repeatedly sell their recyclables to other depots at irregular intervals. However, this type of transaction always occurs in hiding. The depot doesn't keep an eye on us. We can just go to another depot, sell the items and leave hurriedly. Some people also secretly sell to other depots, though, said Sophia. Leaving in haste implies an unawareness that the practice is not quite correct in terms of the generally accepted structures of operation. The action seems at first not to be in accordance with the agreements that the waste pickers have made uh, with their depots, meaning it also goes against their reliability and loyalty. Ironically, the action precisely contributes to the preservation of the whole recycling infrastructure at all. And I could continue, but I think time is off. <laughs> 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 so actually, this is just a very quick snapshot somehow. Yeah. But the hard copy of the book is here in case anyone would like to look at it a little bit more. And it is open access, right? So yeah, the introduction, available. actually. Oh, okay. Yeah, not the entire book. Okay. Unfortunately. Yeah. Okay, so time for... So we'll have some time for discussion, and then the uh, audience will be invited to join. Um, all right, so um, so first I wanted to kind of, I guess, just begin with um, with the Ajay. Like, so uh, is it Ajay or Ajays? Ajay. Okay, perfect. But okay, 
So I was just wondering if you could say a little bit more about about them, about the Ajais. Uh, like, who are they? Is this a larger identity or even an ethnic group? Like, we learn a lot about it, uh, about them kind of in the course of, I mean, this is predominantly where the ethnography is done, is with them and on their daily roots. So we know that they're predominantly women and that this kind of type of work in the city has like feminized over a long period of time. And they're often women who have come from outside of the city um, who do not have um, a degree um, and often ethnically Khmer, is that right? Yeah, um, but I'm just curious, and it's interesting because within the whole kind of waste infrastructure that you allude to, both the one you focus on in terms of recycling, but also the one, you know, they're interacting with municipal waste workers, and then there are people who work within landfills or who um, who specialize in picking waste from landfills. You know, they we get glimpses of, of them, but but um, but these are the only people who are referred to in like a with this name, like a proper noun. <laughs> And so I'm just curious, like, um, yeah, if you could say more, does it, does the term imply like a cohered position in the larger social fabric of the city, um, or beyond the city? Um, uh, yeah. Hmm? Yeah, thank you. So I'm unsure who I should face while answering, so I try to say it equally, or, oh, the microphone. <laughs> so yeah, um. Yeah, thank you again for everything and all the questions. So, um, yeah, uh, ethnographically, I mainly uh, walked and worked with HIs as a group, but it's not only one homogeneous group. Actually, there are multiple of those HIs, and they gave themselves somehow the name. Or oh, it's a bit unclear where this name came from, because in former times of when there was a rampant marketization in the, the beginning of the 90s in Cambodia, um, people started suddenly to be somehow thrown in plastic materials or materials which were synthetically waste and didn't know how, what to do with that. So, and then people started um, this recycling business just by hand somehow and immediately and quite genuinely. And um, at the very beginning, there were mainly men <laughs> and there were mainly Vietnamese, interestingly. And after a period of time that changed and um, nowadays it's rather Vietnamese, I mean, ethnic Vietnamese are rather the co-owners and um, Cambodian women are mainly, as you already said, those HIs. And um, while they were walking uh, through the streets, they had always this kind of horn or they were uh, shouting out HIs. And so therefore, so that means something, there's a service. Uh, and therefore they somehow get coined by this name and they also name themselves as HIs too. So. Um, but this is not a homogeneous um, community in this sense. And it's also, for me actually, I have also made some, yeah, tiny research in other um, um, cities like Battambang and Siemrep, but I've never stumbled over um, other names like HIs. Not, I mean, I'm not sure whether those people, those waste pickers working in different cities, if they call themselves also HIs. I, I was not stumbling over this uh, terminus again, but I guess so, because it became rather a Cambodian terminus for a certain profession nowadays. And you said that it means, it's like basically announcing that there's a service. Yeah. Okay, and that's the kind of semantic, the... Right. The meaning, okay, and then it over time congealed as a name to reference the people announcing the service yeah. they're providing. Right, and that's also that the difference um, to other waste picker groups. For for example, those uh, living and um, sometimes living, not uh, sometimes not living, but still working on landfills, for example, um, and those who are picked up by night, so they would never dare somehow to call themselves HIs because they are not providing a service in the sense that they are squeezing a horn or shouting out that they are on the streets that also households know, ah, okay, there's somebody coming along and I can just sell my recyclables that I have collected at home to this person. 
So because I mean those HIs they circle around the city and they collect of course and they also I don't know dig in the bins and search for recyclables but they also have a very stabilized uh, network of household customers in principle that they regularly visiting. Yeah. Thanks. Okay, so my next question uh, hopefully is like a fun question. <laughs> um, so I'm wondering if you have any particularly interesting things or matter that you were exposed to while um, waste picking, because a lot of your ethnography was doing this. Mm -hmm. And I, this question in, a, in part comes from reading Waste of a Nation. I'm not sure if you read yeah. right, uh, Asa Duran and mm -hmm. Jeffrey's. Uh, and you know, where they talk a lot about waste, um, like waste policy, waste, um, waste, like collection, um, and segregation and reselling post, like the post consumption life of waste in, in India. And the thing that always sticks in my mind from that book is hair, like <laughs> how valuable hair is for picking and it's often and there are there's hair that's hair there's hair of very high quality that one can get from temples that are, that have been oiled there and and also from like romantical households um where like women often grow their hair very very long and oil and treat it and those fetch the highest rates but in in india is i uh one of the leading exporters of for wigs and other things in the international hair uh, trade and but 70% of this is waste hair waste like mm. hair that has been picked from from the ground picked from bags and people pick it and they kind of segregate them into strand length and quality and and then wrap it up in in some of these can can fetch like uh, a $15 for for a ball of hair and I don't know, this is just something that always sticks in my mind, even though that book covers so much. And so I'm just curious if there's anything that sticks out in your mind of your time, you know, mm -hmm. following the work of waste pickers. Yeah. In yeah, that's quite interesting with hair. I don't know, but I think the Indian economy, recycling economy, is re really much more specialized on really certain kinds than the Cambodian, for example, because the Cambodian recycling economy is mainly specialized on the certain synthetic materials like uh, plastic aluminium but also like copper and zinc mm -hmm. and so on so it's not so um it's how to say it it does not work on other margins i don't know than these main main i was wondering plastic. about that yes yeah. because when reading about the indian like mm. but like waste economy it is so diverse yeah. there's so much that like almost uh, i mean you could imagine almost anything has value post its in initial consumption mm. um yeah but in in whereas like reading about the infrastructure you're talking about it's it is it was often plastic it was uh, aluminum and I was curious yeah. about that yeah yeah I mean there's uh, as I said before I mean there's different groups and different I mean each group somehow has a kind of uh, how to say it certain certain items certain materials they like to collect and recycle or sell it so uh, mainly in this recycling economy that I described these are mainly the, the items or materials that I just counted but of course there's also for example medical waste there which is a huge problem in Cambodia at the moment because there's also no recycling infrastructure which caused problems due to the COVID crisis for example um, because there were no people or there are a small group of people for example in Phnom Penh collecting these kinds of waste but there is nothing beyond that so but yeah I don't know <laughs> um, so what I the 
I mean, in comparison to what you you told, I think that the, what I find quite um, interesting always when I was on the streets somehow with my voice pickers was that they used everything in a certain way. Either they collected it to sell it or they used it for their own stuff. So n seldomly they collected it and then sold it on their own way. So normally they collected it and made use of it. For example, they found some pens that they find useful for their kitchen or uh, they or whatever, some cleaning utensils. So they just, uh, um, for example, um, there was once a woman that uh, got some extra soap from, from one of the households. Um, and she just poured it over her pushcart. And I asked her what she's doing there. And she said, yeah, it smells better afterward. <laughs> so yeah, it makes very much sense. So yeah, so it was rather direct use of things. That is what I find quite interesting also. So, yeah. mm -hmm. Thanks. Okay, so I have numerous questions, but I'll, I'll, I'll raise what I think is the most important one next, just so we have time. So since the infrastructure of your work is primarily comprised of people and their labor, I just was wondering, like, yeah, how or if that changes anything about your or our understanding of infrastructure, whether it be this infrastructure, the infrastructure of your research, or also more generally infrastructure, and if there are any particular ethical considerations of a specifically human infrastructure, primarily infra human com composed infrastructure demands. So I, this question it maybe originates in, I, I don't know, infrastructure is such a, an alluring paradigm for, you know, in so many ways and that it like, it invites all of this like Deleuzean theory, this kind of, mm -hmm. um, this um, new materialism, systems thinking. And so like, and, and I just think about how it's like, we've gone from thinking of infrastructure as a very inert, non-living thing to something that is comprises of vibrant matter, you know, or it has a vibrance and it's, it, it's making the inert live, lively. It is also compatible and in active exchange with for other forms of life. And that, that shift has kind of done a lot, whether it be in infrastructure or anthropology or uh, the sciences more broadly, it has done a lot for ethical thinking and that it's kind of decentered, you know, humans in many ways. Um, and where we talk about the more the, the more than human um, and, and that needn't even be like uh, living in kind of um, in in ways thought I guess maybe 20 50 years ago um, but your work is really the foil or the counter to that and that it goes kind of the opposite direction so that it's an infrastructure that's mostly comprised of humans or human labor and so it goes beyond people acting as extensions of infrastructure or like tinkering to infrastructure to adjust their needs or their access. But, um, and it's more than just doing infrastructural work, but the, but the agis are, are the infrastructure for recycling. And this is again, like the primary, the possibility for circular circularity in the kind of waste economy of the city. So I'm curious, like, should we use the same language to talk about the infrastructural work of the AGI um, as we do with, say, like water delivery or transportation infrastructure? You know, things that we may afford a lively of lively, liveliness or vibra a vibrance, but something that we think of as a thing, something that's largely non-human. And how is it for you to navigate a literature that's largely based on much less lively or less humanly infrastructures as you're analyzing and writing about that? 
done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Multiple questions. <laughs> yeah, I've got a question yeah. for you. Yeah. Navigate as you please. So yeah, maybe I I mean yeah, quite smart questions. Uh, thanks. Um so I mean, you already partly answered it <laughs> the first question. <laughs> I think one of the highlights that uh, infrastructure studies brought was the decentering of the human and to, to, to understand infrastructure as a social material and social technical network, for example, something I also um, take um, as a starting point to understand how this infrastructure, recycling infrastructure is actually structurally, I don't know, uh, measured. Um, so, however, so I think that is a very uh, crucial ad uh, advantage of this whole infrastructure um, <coughs> perspective. Um, however, I mean, by um, um, by reading, for example, uh, Abdul Malik Simon, who has written the people as infrastructure, I mean, that was c quite leading for my work, actually. And there's also some criticism, by, for example, by, um, I forgot his first name, but Doherty. Um, and he criticized, for example, that there's, there's also some danger in describing people as infrastructure, as you also asked somehow, because that kind of depoliticize and dehumanize the human labor that is behind it. And actually, I was thinking about the same while kind of coining this people as infrastructure in the sense of infracycles, for example, which I come back later in a second. Um, because of course that is a there's a valid valid criticism but on the other hand side if i'm talking on the on the doing way about this kind of of recycling practices which be, would be infrastructuring it doesn't say the same as infrastructure infrastructuring is a kind of practice a way of doing that classifies the way we are thinking about the world we are categorizing things however so and how we value or devalue certain things and how we live how we structure our daily living so that's quite important but often quite silently used uh, not often visible so and that very much uh, corresponds to what female care about or whatever care about generally is doing so so i wanted to bring something out which is, has more stableness in, the, in creating at the same time another trope something very aligned to donna Haraway, of course so and then i decided it might might be sense to to term them as infrastructure um, to ha emphasize their the stability and also the presence in the in the public area and the importance important the, the importances of their work actually, so I think that was one point. And the other question I wanted to delve in was about um, the circularity, which um, just quickly to highlight it. And we need to go on uh, probably, but yeah, um, I coined this terminus of infracycles because I realized that infrastructures often, of course, still. I mean, there was this criticism that is actually the basic on which the critical or not critical social science infrastructures evolved. That was that infrastructures are hard physical things and that they are often yeah i mean that was the main, the main criticism so on the basis of this criticism um those infrastructure studies um that are based on for example or by susan laystar by geoffrey volker and so on um was created they actually showed that infrastructures are often silently that they are always there that they are social material and they are by 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 no means they are any way hard like bridges or then there is no need that there must be physical in this way. So that was the first point. But I wanted to highlight and then emphasize somehow the processality and the practices that are bringing this infrastructure into being, so to speak. And um, therefore, I choose the terminus of circularity. And that derived actually from my empirical yeah, observations with waste pickers who were literally circling uh, around the city. And what I found out was that the infrastructure, because I was then asking myself, how does such an infrastructure come into being? How does it hold also? It doesn't mean that something comes into being, but how does it hold? Okay, of course, of, because of daily practices. But what are these daily practices? And then I realized that there are certain 
I don't know, a certain uh, repetitiveness and a certain self-referentiality to something that one could also say is a stable uh, network or social material or technological network, but it could be also an assemblage, for example. But I have chosen, chosen for the concept of infrastructure. So, and that was the how the infrastructure actually endure and also is maintained still and repaired all the time. And that highlights the, the aspect of circularity, highlights the process reality and the practices that are always, the practices on its own are cyclic in this way. And they are always referring back to this work that HIs are doing, and that is how the infrastructure comes into being. And that is like in part in their recursive nature, is that right? right? In yeah. that recursive being always referencing back to the self, but then you define it in several ways. Yeah. But like self-maintaining, self-defining, uh, kind of opt continually optimizing and making adjustments. Um, thank you very much. Thank you so much. I thought this was really very interesting to listening to the to the two of you. Thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you.